Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen with David Gura. Daily, we bring you insight from the best of economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Good morning, everyone. David Gurren, Tom Key, Mr. Gurren, off, off, off today. He is steeled for Indians, Yankee baseball, Diamondbacks winning out west. We'll do some sports report for you. I believe the Patriots had a football game yesterday. We may touch on that as well. Mr. Gurren out here, London. Francine Lacroix will join me here in a moment. Right now, uh, she's. I, 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 Francine, are you coughing? Are you? Are you? Are you as ill as the prime minister? The prime I don't minister. Know, but someone. Someone may give me a P forty five shortly. No, I'm kidding, Tom. But what this is, is a P forty five? So P forty five. When an employer says, "Thank you so much, Tom. You've been great," but actually we have to fire you, then they give you a P forty five, which means that you bring to the government. So yesterday, it, it was unexpected. The prime minister Theresa May was meant to give a great speech outlining, you know, her position within the conservative government. She started coughing, started spluttering. Yeah. That made her seem human. But then you had, you know, the, this uh, rogue person also giving her the P45. Yeah. It didn't look right. Well, full disclosure, uh, surveillance team nationwide, worldwide, you may hear a little bit of prime ministerial coughing today from me. I'm fighting the plague <laughs> a little bit as well. Mark Chandler with us with Brown Brothers Harriman. We've been having a really spirited conversation with Mr. Chandler this morning about the linkages in here. Let's, Mark, go to uh, what you see in your economic team sees uh, with inflation. Um, the vice chairman yesterday, Stanley Fisher, was adamant about shifting from transitory to a higher level of inflation. Do you buy it? I do think that inflation is is going to rise over time, but I think that it, we are stuck in this. In some ways, it's, it's like, you know, we're talking about what's happening in Catalonia, civil wars. And I think that... Uh, Sort of like asking Mrs. Lincoln, besides that, how is the play? Because what I want to say is that we are still stuck in this great moderation that was interrupted by the great financial crisis. And that great moderation is characterized by low growth and low inflation. And I think we're still in that type of world. I, I mean, I, I, I look at that type of world and I look at a VIX of 9.47, which is a quiet in the market. Do you just assume further quieting then in that type of world? Well, it scares me. I mean, at Brown Brothers, as value investors, we're really concerned about the lack of value. Oftentimes, uh, how difficult value is to find after such a strong rally in the stock market at record highs. And so I know what I've done personally is I've moved more into cash thinking that eventually, and I don't know when, but eventually we're going to see a, a, a major pullback. And it just scares me that... That we never catch it on time, and I thought uh, missed the uh, the big crash in 2000. Uh, had to wear that, had to weather that storm, had to weather the great financial crisis. And this time, yeah. it just seems to me that with the stock market at these elevated levels, with changing dynamics, with my belief that the Federal Reserve is going to raise interest rates later this year again, and again next year, uh, that I think that we that we have some downside. The risk is on the downside, the equities. All right. What's the most distorted thing that you see out there? If you look at value investing, Mark, is there something that actually, I don't know if it's a canary in the coal mine that we want to talk about or just something that indicates something sinister? Yeah. So here's what I've been looking at lately. On a weekly basis, I take a look at the Russell 1000. They have a Russell 1000 growth index and a Russell 1000 value index. And I know a lot of Americans have been talking about buying European stocks or chasing emerging markets. But if you take a look at that, I think on, uh, on your Bloomberg, it's uh, RLG, Russell Growth Fund, a growth index. 
that is up this year in the U.S. We're talking about the Russell 1000. is up 30%. 30% this year. Right. And so that, tells, that, that, that is a warning sign to me. Uh, that's uh, excessive return, so to speak. And eventually, I think, I believe in that mean reversion process. I can't tell you when it's going to happen. I'm not that smart. Right. I just think that <laughs> a 30% move uh, in this late in the business cycle is something that is either not sustainable or it's something that I don't know how to, I don't know how to deal with. Right, but t- so tell me why, right? Or, or tell me how. If you see a risk reversal, if you see something ugly out there, is it a horde mentality or is the catalyst actually you know, c- coming from something? Oh, sure. Okay. So the catalyst is not going to just simply come from nothing because I think that it's sort of like one of those Newton's laws of physics that sort of a force stays in motion until it meets like some, another force. And so, I, but I think that what happens is psychology can be th- like thinning and the fundamental justification gets thinner and then it just takes a spark that doesn't, that doesn't necessarily have to be a major deal. It could be a delay in tax reform. It could be that we don't get some of the corporate tax cuts as much as President Trump has advocated for. It, it could be a lot of different things, but it could be even a bolt out right. of the blue. I remember when the dollar turned around once when Gorbachev was here in New York and got out of his car and shook people's hands, and the dollar turned around. I mean, Mark, Mark beautifully explained, and, and, and I go back then to, uh, you know, almost Newtonian physics, but the idea of the momentum or inertial force of the market, what really messes people up, and you see this every Friday in the gloom reports, is, is the idea of jump conditions. Are we ripe for shocks right now, or is there a real stability within sales, within earnings, and within a relatively good GDP? Yeah, so I do think I agree with you that the, the U.S. fundamentals are not horrible. That is to say, we've got trend growth, low inflation. You pointed out we've got uh, low unemployment. We've got uh, rising job, rising employment. Yeah. Uh, the economy is not, is not so bad, uh, but I'm not sure that it justifies uh, these kind of, uh, of, historically speaking, stretched valuations. But I'm not a stock market expert. I just say that, listen, we're, it looks to me like there's not a lot of uh, margin for error. And knowing, uh, looking around the globe, looking here at the U.S., I see weak leadership. I yeah. see a lot of chances for errors, lots of chances for policy errors, lots of chances for bolts out of the blue, blue like a storm, like the well, Catalonian referendum, a Japanese elections. Who would have thought that Merkel could win the German election that yet still lose in the sense of having to put together a coalition that might, uh, say, tamper okay. her own like European views? Well, then where do you shift to? I mean, David Harrell, the acclaimed international mm-hmm. equity investor— as a strong belief, and you go around the world, can you do that in currency, or does your strong dollar call simply imply weaker emerging market currencies? Yeah, I think that you're right. That in the, in the big picture sense, that the uh, what's happening in emerging markets this year, it's been a great return for many emerging markets. It's been partly a function of a weaker dollar. And so, as a, if I'm right, the dollar strengthens because the Fed's raising interest rates, because the U.S. economy is growing strong enough that the Fed can continue to raise interest rates. The balance sheet is going to sh- is beginning to shrink this month in the U.S. While in Europe, in the fourth quarter, the ECB's balance sheet is going to expand by 180 billion euros. So, for these reasons, the dollar is going to get stronger, and I think that's suck some money out of the emerging markets. The interesting thing here, when retail buys a stock, they're interested in an asset, they're looking at the asset to appreciate. Institutional side, we're not only looking at the asset to appreciate, but we think about our funding costs. And so those emerging markets were purchased with primarily a, a short dollar funding position. And so as the dollar strengthens, they're going to have to unwind that. While, say, in European stocks might not be done by as much as a dollar a dollar funding as maybe a Swiss franc funding or a yen funding. 
Right, but Mark, and, and uh, you know, I'm doing it just because it's a Thursday, so it's a great day to start about conspiracy theories. But what if it was all about China? If you look at these dollar moves, you know, the idea that Chinese FX policy actually plays a much bigger part in dollar, euro, and bond yields. Is there any truth in that? Well, there might be. I mean, I think that uh, one is we, you know, in my career, we've, we've blamed a lot of people. We used to blame the, the Central Bank of Malaysia for manipulating the currency markets, Bank Nagara. And then it became Soros, and it became unnamed hedge funds. And now, of course, China is the 800-pound gorilla in the room. But here's a story I would tell you, and that is this year, China has bought about a little bit more than $100 billion worth of U.S. treasuries. Is that a lot? It's a, it's a, well, think about what the Federal Reserve is going to do. This, and here in the fourth quarter, the Federal Reserve is not going to roll over $30 billion. Okay, so it's, it's four times, three times, four times. Of what the, yeah, of making up yeah. for what the Fed's not doing. And as Chinese reserves grow, yeah. I think we're going to get another report uh, yeah. in the next couple of days. So I, I'm not concerned that China is this major disruption or China is driving the dollar. And the reason right. I'd say is Oakham's razor. The simplest explanation is preferable. And I think I can explain the dollar's movement by talking about what happened in France in April. And I can yeah. talk about what happened now to the euro dropping about well, almost three cents mm-hmm. since <clears throat> Merkel's election. What a joy to have Francine Lacroix with us. Uh, very quickly here, Francine, before we get back to Mr. Chandler at Brown Brothers Harriman. The first sentence of a book that stilled my life. Tonight, I find myself here in a guest house in the city of Salisbury. And, and to see that Ishiguro has just won the Nobel Prize in Literature from the United Kingdom is as stunning as Bob Dylan last year. I mean, it's just exceptional to me, Francine, to see a giant with with the remains of the day, the huge success of the movie and the book. I mean, everybody had to read it. Just extraordinary how the Nobel Prize in Literature has been uh, taken over the last two years. Yeah, it is amazing how it's taken and actually also how sometimes it takes a life of their own. You know, his work, of course, includes The Remains of the Day, uh, Never Let Me Go, um, something that a lot of people listening to us, I imagine, will want to go and revisit. Yeah, I I totally agree with that. It's one of the books that stilled me, is the way I would put it, and it it just begs for a reread. It's amazing how a book is different 10 years down the road. So what you're saying is the prize is going to people that you finally have heard of. Exactly. That's the critique. No, John, you're dead on in that there's been a huge critique (laughs) of this. I mean, mean, some people still haven't gotten over Bob Dylan winning it last year. And of course, Mr. Dylan, uh, with the idea of was he going to show up or not and all that. Yes. I I would also say, you know, because of the Brexit debate and the fact that they're talking about foreigners now arriving in the UK and immigration, it's interesting that they've given it to a British novelist uh, who was born in Japan and then moved to England in 1960. Absolutely fascinating. Mark Chandler had no idea he was going to hear this this morning. <laughs> Mark, Mark, would you like to weigh in on the remains of the day and what it means for the dollar? <laughs> Mark Chandler with us with Brown Brothers Harriman. What is, what's going to mean is everybody's going to go out and buy it and the royalties will go through uh, the moon. Mark, let's bring it over to Sterling. As Francine mentions, and maybe this has something to do with Kazuo Ishiguro winning uh, the Nobel Prize for Literature. Brexit is a new United Kingdom, Mark Chandler, or is it not? Yeah, so I don't know. I mean, we're so far away from it still. You know, uh, recently uh, the Prime Minister May gave a speech where she's asking for a two-year extension or transition phase while almost everything remains the same. And so I know there's a lot of people who think that the longer that you can have a transition phase, the longer before the break is is, confirmed. The longer that it takes for the U.K. to set up its own system, uh, separate from the E.U., 
the more likely that somehow uh, they'll find a way to backtrack. I'm not quite there yet, but I know that that's the suspicion behind a lot of people. The transition phase, all, I think it's really a mess. But in the short run, the U.K. markets aren't being driven by Brexit. Right now, it's really a question of Bank of England policy and sort of the sentiment on sterling. You know, last week, the uh, commitment of traders at the IMM in the futures market where speculators, where participants have to declare whether the commercials have an underlying business interest or non-commercials. That is speculators. The speculative positions in the sterling were long for the first time in several years as of last Tuesday. All right, but Mark, what's more of a mess? I mean, you say it's a mess. What's more of a mess? Politics and, you know, within the Conservative Party, which I'm not sure what it means. I don't know whether it means that Boris Johnson could end up prime minister. I don't know whether it means early elections with Jeremy Corbyn from the Labour side. Or are you talking about the mess in negotiations between the EU and the UK? Yes. And by that, I mean that it's a mess across <laughs> the board. But I think that the key here in the short run is that Brexit is both a national challenge for the U.K., but it's also a challenge within the Tory party. And this is what Cameron knew. This is what other Tory party leaders knew, that the EU issue was divisive through for the Tory party. I think that the takeaway that I get from this, Francine, is that we are in this era of weak leadership, and that's a problem. And again, this is one of those things we talked about before with risk and the sort of the dangerous scenarios is do we have much room of margin of error? When you have weak leaders, I'd say, and I've made this point before that Macron in France, Merkel in Germany, May in the UK, their support ratings are lower than Trump's in the US. And this is, I think, we're part of this. The US is part of this. UK is part of this. This is a weak leadership. And if we get a crisis, if we get a shock to the system, things that we by definition, cannot predict. Do we have the leadership that can guide us through no. it this time? And I'm not convinced. And that's the same thing about the Fed policy. Who becomes the chairman of the Federal Reserve is not about whether they raise interest rates this quarter or next quarter. It's about whether they are in a position to be able to provide that leadership should we get a crisis. Mark, thank you so much. Can't say enough about it. As we have the Nobel Prize in Literature to Kazuo Ishiguro, of course, the author of The Remains of the Day, we look to another Nobel Prize in Literature candidate. That would be Mark Chandler for his new book, Political Economy of Tomorrow. It is a really interesting book linking in our system and astronomy. It is very much uh, wonderful on the history of how far we've come, not only in foreign exchange markets, but in our great international economy. Mark Chandler is with Brown Brothers Harriman. Francine Lacroix in London, I'm Tom Kenny, New York. David Gurr, I think he's, what's he doing, John Tucker? He's like moving the kale. It's harvest patch. It's harvesting. harvesting. Harvesting in the kale. kale patch. Yes, in the kale patch. They're harvesting uh, today. Joining us in Washington, John Lieber, Eurasia Group. John, I love your research report for Eurasia Group. It's like you've almost got a buy-hold sell on the politics of, uh, of uh, uh, Washington. Short-term trajectory neutral. Long-term trajectory neutral. What's the long-term trajectory of the Trump White House? Um, I, I think the long-term trajectory of the Trump, Trump White House, you've got to look ahead past the 2018 midterms and kind of you know, do some forecasting about what you think might happen in those elections. Were Democrats to take the House, um, which is possible, I mean, probably a coin flip at this point, not much is going to get done. 
uh, you're going to see uh, investigations of the Trump administration, possible impeachment proceedings, although I think that's probably yeah. a long shot at this point. And, you know, you're going to see the normal kind of gridlock in Washington. But the reality is, even if Republicans hold the House, there's still not much that's going to happen. It's really hard yeah. to legislate, hard to get anything done in this environment. The Ken Burns, the Vietnam War, I'm watching most of this, folks. I really can't say enough about it. We had Mr. Burns on the other day uh, to speak of it. In, in 1966-67, Burns has to remind us repeatedly repeatedly the support LBJ had and the support that was there underlying for the war until all uh, fell apart later uh, in the era. What is the underlying support for the president? And does does Washington understand that? Uh, The underlying support for the president comes from his unexpected electoral college victory. I mean, I think that there were probably other Republicans didn't have as, as good of a shot in retrospect as Donald Trump did, he put together an unusual coalition that delivered Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, and Michigan uh, over to the Republican aisle, uh, states that hadn't gone Republican for almost 30 years. And because of that unusual coalition that only Donald Trump could put together, that gives him uh, you know, a decent amount of power, at least to the Republican Party, because it kind of changes and redefines who Republican voters are and how the Republican Party has to kind of adapt their policy approach to appeal to them. The biggest change, of course, is on trade, but other things like immigration, um, even tax policy to some degree, is, are going to change because of the unusual politics of this president. John, has the president's language, tone, tweets, has it changed the Republican Party? Uh, I think the party is going to be around a lot longer than Donald Trump is. And while you will see some kind of junior Trump candidates that pop up in the 2018 midterm elections, we saw Roy Moore win a seat in Alabama on a very kind of Trumpian, bombastic campaign. Um, Overall, the party is what it's going to be and has been for the last 30 years or so, which is a traditionally fiscally conservative, uh, you know, tax cutting, strong on uh, national defense kind of party. Um, So Trump, I think, can change the tone a little bit. You'll see some influence uh, in certain elections in certain places. But overall, I mean, the party leaders are still who they are. All right. Does he, uh, you know, need loyalty above all? And I know there's been a lot of talk about, you know, Rex Tillerson and what he said and he didn't say. But can you see any repercussions on foreign policy because of that? And not really. I mean, I think that Tillerson's doing his best to kind of hold together um, U.S. foreign policy against a president who doesn't follow a conventional strategy, runs his own communications operation, and is prone to saying things that aren't necessarily, uh, you know, vetted or, or thought through in a policy process. Um, but the reality is the foreign policy is really being run by uh, Mattis, General Mattis and General McMaster, the Secretary of Defense and the National Security Advisor. And, you know, the military really has a very strong command over this president's foreign policy because the president's new to foreign policy, and he didn't come into office with a really strong one. So he's kind of outsourced a lot of that to his very experienced advisors who are taking the yeah. lead on a lot of foreign policy and will do so whether or not Tillerson sticks around. Oh, but come on. The money question here, John Lieber, is can he outsource the behavior, the politics, the cajoling of tax reform? I don't buy for a minute any president in history has outsourced that unique linkage between the executive and the legislative branch. 
Yeah, when it comes to tax reform, I think the president's going to be a critical player. And because they're going to be push a, pushing a middle-class tax cut, which the president campaigned on, is very comfortable talking about, and a corporate rate cut, similarly, the president supports it, he will be a key messenger in this battle. There's going to be hard things that they have to do, like trying to limit the state and local tax deduction, and the president's ability to kind of rally folks around those hard things is in question. But when it comes to kind of the, the upside of this bill, uh, the tax cuts, the president's going to be on board, and he'll be an important uh, messenger for that for that goal. Do you see evidence that he learned from the health care debate that will make him more Obama-like or LBJ-like? Uh, I would, uh, n- no, <laughs> not really. I think that the uh, health care debate, you know, his lesson in the health care debate is that the White House needs to take more of a lead on it. At least that's what was reported to be his lesson. But the reality is you've got Paul Ryan and Mitch McConnell firmly in the driver's seat here, working closely with the president's advisors. But at the end of the day, this is a vote-counting exercise. What can get 218 in the House? What can get the 50 votes in the Senate? And those two guys, Ryan and McConnell, are going to be the ones that make that determination, not the president. Uh, John, when you look at when you talk about tax reform, is 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 it clear that the end game is to actually? Um, I, I mean, actually, I'm asking you what the end game is. Is it for GDP growth? Is it good for the economy? Or is it skewed towards re-election? I think it's all about growth. I mean, I think that the, what's motivating members uh, is all about what's motivating members on the policy is all about growth. What they want to see is a pro-growth tax code that eliminates deductions and credits, is less complicated for American families, and helps American corporations compete. That's kind of the policy goal. What's driving the politics of it is, of course, re-election. And a lot of members right now think that they're going to have a hard time uh, holding the House or winning their seats back in 2018 if they don't have a significant policy victory for them. And I think that everybody, the president included, wants to be able to run on a middle-class tax cut, which is why the the tax relief is such a big focus of this piece of legislation. How much are you focusing on on gun control? I know this, of course, has been one of the biggest debates in the wake of that terrible tragedy in Las Vegas, but has the debate shifted? So gun gun control is not really something that we follow that closely because, in my view, it's unlikely to happen at the federal level. Um, You're going to see some states that will change their gun control policies, but even at the state level, it's controversial. And there aren't a lot of proposals out there, from from what I understand, that are thought of as being particularly effective at stopping um, the kind of mass shootings that we've seen in this country because – the, there's so many. There's access to guns is going to be easy, no matter what how you change the laws, because there's so many guns in the country. So um, you know, I, I don't. I'm skeptical that there's going to be a big policy movement here. Um, maybe over time, with subsequent generations of politicians as they kind of cycle through, you might see more anti-gun people get elected. But given the current composition of Congress, um, I just don't see a lot of prospects for changes right now. John, what will you look for in the next 30, 40 days on tax reform? I mean, we've had SALT, the state and local tax issue, come up here. But what's the the next issue, the next observation we'll see in tax reform? The critical question right now is can the House and Senate come to an agreement on their 2018 budget resolution? And both chambers will be passing a budget resolution within the next uh, two weeks. And once that's done, they have to get together and say, all right, guys, let's work out the differences here. And it's an unknown factor whether or not they can work out the differences. The House has a lot more spending cuts than theirs. The Senate bill is much more slimmed down and focused on tax reform. And while both chambers want to do tax reform, they need this budget resolution done in order to take that next step. And it's unclear today if they can work out their differences. I think they can and will. 
and we'll see a conference budget report come about by the end of October, and that will be a very positive step for markets and a very big step forward in this tax debate because it will allow them to move a tax bill with a simple majority in the Senate if they can do this. Uh, John, thank you so much. John Lieber with Eurasia Group. Just a terrific briefing there on uh, the, the ebbs and flows in, in indeed the many currents uh, that you see uh, in Washington today. Francine Lacroix in London. I'm Tom Keene in New York. And, and joining us now, Peter Roskam, gymnast uh, Peter Roskam, who has not only done the reality of gymnastics, but done the political gymnastics over the years associated with uh, the former Congressman Tom DeLay, former Congressman Henry Hyde of Illinois. He is in the 6th District of Illinois. Uh, and is a Republican. Uh, you know, I, I, Congressman, wonderful to have you with us. How polarized is Illinois today between Republicans and Democrats? I've been watching Ken Burns' Vietnam, and there was LBJ talking to Everett Dirksen years ago, and that was a different time and place where there was a middle ground. Is there a middle ground in political Illinois today? doesn't seem like it right now. There's a very deep breach between the political parties, and um, it's, it's a pretty fractious state all the way around. And here's the shame of it. There is so much good that, that, that's going on in Illinois. It's got an incredibly solid geography. It's got agriculture that's the envy of the world. It's got a manufacturing base that nobody can compete with, financial services companies, health care, and so forth. It's just got bad policy. The bad policies have been coming out of, frankly, one one city and one one party that has dominated things to the exclusion of others. Right. And Illinois isn't going to see better days from a financial point of view until it sees better policies coming out of Springfield. Your district, the sixth district of Illinois, is a long drive from uh, Wrigley Field. You got to go through Chicago over it. You're west of Chicago, then up to the northwest, is as well. And I think you probably have a pretty good understanding of the gentleman to the north, Speaker Ryan. How? What is the power of Speaker Ryan now, and particularly as we struggle towards tax reform? So, Speaker Ryan, I think, has done um, done as much work as any modern speaker in terms of laying the groundwork for tax reform. So. There's a, you know, he, he's, he's walked in and created an expectation that we're going to get this done. He's helped with uh, other leaders in Washington build out literally a framework upon which then the tax writing committee can fill this in. So speakers cannot declare things. We know that the, you know, the modern speakership in particular has really changed over the past decade. And it's very much a first among equals, but there's no demands that come out of the Speaker's office now. But what it comes is cajoling and admonition and laying the, laying the, the, uh, the economic argument out from the perch of the Speaker's office. So I think he's done as, as much and actually much more than any, any Speaker in modern history to create an expectation that tax reform gets done. All right, but we still need to wait for the details, sir. So if you look at the details, first of all, what is the end game of this tax plan? Will it really filter through into GDP, given where the U.S. economy is in this current cycle? 
The end game is to have a transformational tax reform that drives real growth in this country and makes the U.S. the most competitive tax jurisdiction in the world, and we can do it. Here's what's interesting. In the tax reform debate itself, there is nobody that's defending the status quo. Think about that. Nobody is out there, and I mean not a single person is going to say, oh, the Internal Revenue Code, I love that thing. Just leave it the way it is, which is very different than other, you know, than the health care debate, for example, where there are strong defenders of that. Well, the name of the game now is take advantage of that, um, take advantage yeah. of that momentum and drive towards consensus and come up with something that we can be proud of. I would suggest, Congressman, in our final question to you, and we'd love to have you back after the Cubs go back to back in the World Series. I, I would, I would love to know from you what would be your advice to the president over a good cup of coffee or two scoops of vanilla ice cream to suggest to him how to engage with your brethren in Congress, your GOP brethren. What would be your counsel to the president on how to speak to experienced moderates like yourself? I would say, um, you know, there, there, there's, uh, I, I would say two things. Number one, put down the Twitter feed. I don't think it's particularly helpful, and it's, a, and it's a big distraction for people in a district like mine. And the second thing is to lay out, lay out uh, a, a clear priority. And on tax reform, he has. He said, look, we want, um, we want a corporate rate no higher than 20. We want a pass-through rate no higher than 25. But this all has to be driven and ramped up in middle-income tax relief. And I think it's those kinds of things, that clarity, which is a foreshadowing of better things to come. Wonderful to speak to you. The 6th District, folks, uh, was a Mitt Romney district and shifted to Secretary Clinton uh, here in the last uh, go-around. Peter Roskam is the congressman, Republican congressman from the 6th District uh, in Illinois. Greatly appreciate his time uh, today. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. David Gura is at David Gura. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.